Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create sustainable business and strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Welcome to Cynthia Cherry, who is the president and CEO of the International Leadership Association. We are broadcasting live from Brussels at the annual leadership conference. Thank you, Maureen, for being here with us here in Brussels. I'm so excited about the series of keynote speakers that we are able to present and that will give a timeless message around our topic and theme of leadership in turbulent times. And I'm very pleased with our conference chair, Jord Volkers from Deloitte University, the dean of Deloitte University, and his team who helped us along with the ILA staff to present this global conference in Brussels, Belgium in 2017. Welcome, Michelle Harrison, to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organization in the International Leadership Association Conference. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to give a little bit of background about Michelle. She is the global CEO of Cantor Public, the WPP Group Public Policy Consulting and Research Business. They work with clients in government, corporations, international government organizations, and global NGOs to provide the evidence for decision-making, support innovation in policy and service delivery, improve public value, build local capacity, and share global best practices. What is it that you think is most important for building sustainable success in business? Two things, really. The first is that you understand your client well in the kind of business I'm, which is professional services. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, of course, it's about understanding how you're going to help your clients be able to do their job better okay. um, so that you will be the best possible agency for them and so first and foremost it's about understanding your clients challenges and ensuring that the offer you take to them to, to market I suppose is the offer that they need and will need in the future so so my job is to get that offer right for our clients to help them right now to be able to mm -hmm. my clients are governments around the world so to help them with the challenges of decision making around public policy and, and government communications and and from insight to execution of public policy so to understand their needs and how we can help with that and to anticipate 
the challenges they're about to face next so that we can be ready to support them through that. So first thing is our clients understanding their needs, making sure our capability is going to help them with that. And then of course, the offer is brought to life by the caliber of our people. So it is the, the caliber of our talent in the organization, making sure that we're creating an environment that allows people to be the very best that they can be. And for me personally, as a CEO, to build a, a team, a leadership team around me that is a very high-performing team. So especially during the theme of our conference's turbulent times, mm. dealing with government policy, that has to be a fascinating role that you're fulfilling at this point. Well, I was about to say I do my, I do my job for pleasure. I, I wouldn't, actually. <laughs> I definitely do wish to get paid. But uh, the actual subject matter of what Kantar Public does is, is something that I absolutely wish to be uh, challenged by and to be part of because it's about how to support the delivery of a better quality public realm and I find that intrinsically motivating. So I find it uh, intrinsically motivating and intellectually fascinating. These are, are very turbulent times and I think it's easy to be ahistorical. I think it's easy to overuse the word crisis. But last year we did a piece of work which is the leaders report, the WPP government practice of which we account our public as part we uh, okay. created this we launched it at davos actually in oh, wow. in january of this year and it's the first to the best of our knowledge it's the first global overview of the challenges that government communicators face around the world and what that uh, allowed us to understand is that governments everywhere regardless of, of where they sit on the planet geopolitically are facing what they perceive to be an absolute crisis of trust in terms of um, communicating with the public, disintermediation through technology, which in terms of how recent that is, that's still very recent and there's a lack of um, confidence in the ability of government communications to to manage that, to support democracy or, or, or to support the, the functioning of the nation state. And this, this feeling as well that we are at the beginning of another profound period of change with, uh, with what we will see will be a rapid rise in, um, in robotics and, and AI and, and, and government's feeling that their current practices sit in the, in the older paradigm. So I agree that these are turbulent times mm -hmm. and I do feel that Kantar Public has a role to play in partnering our clients to, to help them with the decision making and the ability to, to respond to that. I'm encouraged, and I should have anticipated, because we've talked about just the ethical and moral issues, everything from cloning humans to AI and medical, some of the, the medical work going on. One of my clients was talking about we can now, with the science of uh, brain research, you could take, take away a mental illness, which seems like it would be a gift. But if you've been schizophrenic your whole life and someone now changes part of your brain, your entire way of functioning yeah. must be relearned. So science and technology, biotech, fintech, all of these things uh -huh. present governments with enormous opportunity and new regulatory challenges. Uh, 
And so where we can play a role is through thinking about what that means for government, but in light of where citizens wish governments to go with this kind of regulation and what the values and attitudes and resources are of their national populations and what that means for the public policy issues that they'll face. So these are exciting and difficult times and obviously governments, unlike most corporations, their challenge is to work with whole population communities rather than just parts of that. So with all of these opportunities come inevitable risk about increasing inequality or how to reduce inequality. So governments basically, you know, they they need to deliver public policy, they need to make public services work and they need to use communications to help the public understand how they can engage or they need to use communications to drive behaviour change to reduce the cost of the of the negative consequences of these changes. So the environment changes a pace Governments need to maintain the quality of the public realm just continues continues within that. Another one that comes to mind is the increase in, you mentioned disaggregation and offshoring, combined with robotics and AI that'll do a lot of jobs that, that were previously done by people, which then could potentially, makes goods and services cheaper, we like that, but it also raises the challenge of how do we keep people employed if we're offshoring and automating work that was previously done by qualified humans that no longer have work. Absolutely, and and our job is to help our clients think about, you know, what does that mean for education policy? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for, for policy around employment and skills and training? What does that mean for the way we collect taxes? What does that mean for public health? Also, what are the opportunities of these new forms of communication actually to now implement rapid improvement. So Mm -hmm. an example of that might be the work we do now in South Asia where the rapid penetration of of smartphones or all forms of mobile technology allow us to reach parts of the population that even 15 years ago we Mm -hmm. would have been challenged to reach and to bring them into the dialogue with government around establishing public policy or to communicate with them in ways that can support behaviour change campaigns around public health. So yes, it is a time of great regulatory challenge and it is a time of rapid movement in the need to get public policy right, but also a time of quite unimaginable opportunity to also deal with some of the uh, global public health challenges, for instance, that, that we haven't managed to before now. So using your example of smartphones, mm-hmm. we've got people now all over the world that are being impacted by Earth-related events, mm-hmm. floods, volcanoes, earthquakes, and phones now send alerts. Yes. And no matter where I am in the world, I, get, get, I do get alerts yeah. for something, and in many cases, those save lives of people who didn't or may not have a television. Yeah, exactly. So the work that we do with government communications teams around the world, Mm -hmm. some of it is about how to use technologies for everyday government communications, Mm -hmm. and some of it is what's the best use of technology for crisis as well. So we we spend a lot of time with our clients on, on, on those types of issues.
So what do you do to build a, a leadership team and an employee team? Because one, good teams create solid organizations. And in a time where you're expecting your people, I'm assuming, to work long hours, stay current, be adaptable because things are changing, presumably moment by moment on the political stage, and in the technology arena. So you're working in a couple of the fastest moving arenas yeah. and probably nothing is going slow in your world. No, but that's trains, that's maybe. one of the great things about <laughs> that's one of the great things about, about what we do. So I think we're exceptionally fortunate. The kind of work that we do is engaging enough that we're able to a attract very talented people into it. Mm -hmm. And we bring people in who have specific skill sets in the areas we've been talking about. They're much greater than my skill set in any of those particular areas. Right. So they may have deep expertise in behaviour change. Okay. They may have deep expertise in uh, new technologies and how they're transforming the way in which people are communicating. Or they may have deep expertise around how to build capability within government's communications teams, or they may have expertise in global best practice in any form of public policy. So I'm extremely lucky that we are able to attract talent of that calibre. My job then is to give the people the space to be able to get on with it, but to be team-based. And so many of the things we've talked about in terms of rapid penetration of mobile technology and um, what that means for public policy, we find those answers by people with those skill sets working together. So a requirement of being able to service our clients is to be able to team around the skill sets needed. So we attract people with deep expertise, we select people who are predisposed to enjoy team environments. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they may well instead be in other environments like academia, etc. But, but for us to be able to work very well with our clients, we have to be excited by what we can do when we synthesize our own capabilities mm -hmm. to take those teams to our clients. I came out of Anderson Consulting and Accenture and pros and cons to every environment. But one of the things we talked about, I, I remember going in as a new hire and saying, I, you know, why is everything this or that? And the, the answer was, we've got at that point 70,000 people around the globe and you could be on a team with any of them. Yeah. And we have to have a common language and a common way of doing things or we couldn't get results for our clients quickly. Yes, I would say though, one of the greatest pleasures I have had in my career is that I've had the opportunity to work with very talented people in teams mm -hmm. alongside them. And I have found that immensely enjoyable. And I think one of the greatest satisfactions is building high-performing teams and mm -hmm. watching what they achieve when they're at their best. And, you know, we're, a, we're in a commercial environment. We're a business. So we don't just spend our time delivering work. We also mm -hmm. spend our time winning work. And, and I also really enjoy the team spirit that comes with the big pitch, with a long pursuit. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think, I think the, the community that comes together for a period of time to fix those problems. And because the kinds of problems we're focused on often are, are very much about the values that people are bringing to the office and wanting their professional lives to be making a, a big contribution in the public realm. I think we're very lucky. I think it's a privilege, actually, to be able to do this work. So we've heard the theme of values in several of the interviews in the last few days. 
Can you say more about how that shows up for your organization and for you? How do your values ripple through the organization? Well, I mean, the starting point is, I think I said earlier, I make mistakes all the time. So I, I'm sure I have good days when my, my values, I hope, are having a very positive impact. And I'm sure I have other days where people are trying to understand what I'm on about, I expect. But we are here to make money. Mm-hmm. Our job is to deliver growth. I, having spent time in different types of organisations like academia and having been involved in not-for-profits, I am extremely confident that I'm at my best in a business environment and okay. that the pursuit of profit in no way weakens the pursuit of uh, delivering benefits to clients that, that also have a public contribution. I'm extremely happy that those things work very well together. And my experience has been uh, we are at our best when we're achieving a healthy bottom line for us and a fantastic outcome for our clients because it allows us to invest in the talent and capability mm-hmm. that they need. So um, my values are about us being successful for our clients and, and the cycle that comes out of that. I don't enjoy working with people who are pompous. So I, on that basis, I don't certainly hire people who are pompous around me. And mm-hmm. I think in the end, organisations are influenced by the personality of the people who are who are senior in them? I don't think we're pompous. I think, I think quite the opposite. I think we, uh, you know, we we have low relative ego. People understand that what we do not negotiate around is collaboration. Mm-hmm. People who work in in Cantar, Cantar Public, speaking on behalf of my particular part of the business, collaboration is not optional. They will collaborate with other people because they will not be able to fix their clients' problems well enough on their own. No one can do that. So that is non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. We are a collaborative culture and people who don't feel comfortable collaborating shouldn't be part of our business. So part um, of that means also admitting I don't know everything. Oh, absolutely. Or, well, let's turn that around. It's about having a passion for learning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I would hate to think that I haven't still got more to learn than I've currently learned to date. Yeah. Uh, so passion for learning. Happen. And I would say that alongside that... I care enormously about us being able to bring the very best of new and evolving methods. So in my world, that's around the empirical evidence base for, well, for evidence-based policymaking. Mm -hmm. So I care passionately about us being able to bring new and evolving methods to those constant problems of how to deliver great public policy that works that works for society so what that means is we need to be constantly in the mode of innovation so innovation mm-hmm. is an everyday occurrence and that would mean again the people who thrive in our organization are people who want new challenges every day okay so michelle what kind of people do you recruit and what are the characteristics of people who thrive not only working in a a consulting space but this specific space that is doing public policy work across countries well from a professional point of view they need to have the skill set that comes with good consulting behaviors so they need to be more passionate about their clients' challenges than their own. Mm -hmm. They uh, need to be inherently motivated to want to support their clients solve problems, to deal with those problems and to find challenges for them. They need to be able to maintain long-term relationships because the kinds of things that we 
work on don't get fixed very quickly and they need to be able to work in a team. So the sustainability of our own business practice is based on people who can sustain very high quality professional standards over long periods of time. They also need to have inherent curiosity around the challenges of the contemporary nation state, wherever that is in the world. So, mm-hmm. and to be motivated to bring the very best of their skill set to solve them. Often we are hiring people who at some point in their lives have studied politics, been involved in journalism or some form of public policy making, have deep expertise in different types of research or consulting capabilities. But they will be interested and inherently motivated to be part of this moment in time of working out how governments adjust to the rapidly shifting technological landscape, some of the biggest public policy challenges of our time, whether they're in public health, that can be obesity or that can be outdoor defecation, that can be the eradication of of childhood diseases. On the other hand, it may be that they are inherently motivated around issues to do with the effective delivery of public services, or their passions may be around the function that governments have to communicate to the public. So, you know, governments are delivering policy, they're delivering services and they're needing to communicate around all of those things. And the more effectively those things are done, the greater the value to the taxpayer, the more effectively that system of governance is working and ultimately the better that government is able to deliver improvements in the quality of life to citizens. So our staff need to be able to combine the professional skills of working in a consulting environment and a research environment with the intellectual ability to wrestle and wish to be part of those solutions. So I hear intellectual curiosity, intellectual horsepower. Yes. Got to be smart. You have, yeah. Got to be curious. We're all, I guess... All of us in in Kantar Public are are driven by the desire to make things work better. And we have found that we, as individuals, are are more effective when we work in high-performing teams Mm -hmm. in a commercial environment. So unique about this time is the cross-sector collaboration. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I've had the privilege to work in uh, different environments, mostly in the commercial world but also in the not-for-profit and I've spent time in academic institutions as well and everything about this moment, this paradigm, this new paradigm that we're entering into tells me that the challenges that we face, whether that be the absolute crisis in trust, in governance, the challenges we have around around, democracy, technological transformation, what this tells me is we have moved beyond the paradigm where the public sector fix the public sector and corporations are out for themselves and and the voluntary sector are there to sort of, you know, mop up the pieces, so to speak. The, the solutions to better governance in our future, I truly believe, are going to be matched, brought together through matching the skills of the public, the private and the third sector. And I think, you know, Kantar Public is can be part of that, our people come from those worlds and I am basically of the view that we should be bringing together solutions that can make a contribution to the quality of the public realm and drive business 
and make it easier for for governments to function and that this is about what works not about how things used to be done thank you what a beautiful note to end on that we're really committed to finding, identifying what works, often through experimentation, through collaboration. We're going to make decisions. Some of them are going to be directionally as good as they can be with the information we have. And then we're going to adjust. And firms like yours are brilliant at helping identify next directions and evaluating what worked and what needs to be refined as we co-evolve across sectors to make the world better for everyone. Thank you. I couldn't have put it better than myself. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Skilled migrants throughout the world can face a variety of challenges. Many times they settle for jobs that are below their skill level because their education and qualifications are not recognized. Do we need local experience in a global world? Join host Alma Besserton for the Global Workplace. We'll explore the issues being faced by migrants as well as showcase diversity and recognize the leadership and inclusion roles of some of today's top global organizations. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Our guest this morning is Sebastian Selicru. Sebastian's work takes leaders and their teams to new levels of performance and business results. He provides leaders and their teams the best opportunity to grow and develop and maximize great returns on investment by identifying and building on their talents and strengths and unleashing their ability to consistently perform at their best and deliver extraordinary results. He treats leadership as a research discipline, a critical social phenomena, and essential business practice. So today, Sebastian and I are going to focus on exploring the relevance of contemporary leaders using storytelling as a sense-making strategy that translates events into plausible scenarios and images, provides sense-giving and mobilizing others to take action and thrive in complex, turbulent, and high-velocity environments. That's a bit of a mouthful. 
Yes. Well, so, we live in a complex world. Everything is complicated and long. <laughs> so is your introduction, evidently. <laughs> so, Sebastian, how did you get here? What's your background? I tried to come every year to this conference. Mm-hmm. I was at the last one in Spain, Barcelona. Yes. So I just uh, came from Dubai. I spent a few days in Dubai, a couple of days in Spain. So I'm going to spend now four or five days here and back in Dubai for 10 days. Oh, goodness. Mm. So tell me a little bit about your work before we jump into the questions. Yeah, look, my work is, uh, I'm a business psychologist. That's my background. Okay. And I like to do research and write and publish, but specialize in leadership development specifically, yes. So what about your life took you into focusing on leadership development? I work for a number of years in, in OD. Okay, organization and, development? Yeah, OD, broadly speaking, training mm-hmm. development in different areas. And, and slowly I find myself in the leadership space. Okay. And in recent years I found that it's a very, has become a very, very uh, important thing mm-hmm. uh, from a social perspective. That's what I see as an important social phenomenon. I also believe we have a leadership crisis that I talk about in my book, Leadership Results, and I think we could do things much better. So let's start so, there, <laughs> <laughs> because I've only been here a couple of days and I've heard people talking about the leadership crisis politically, it's easy yeah. to observe. That's one but. we see in television every day, <laughs> yeah. but that I think is a corporate one as well, mm-hmm. uh, organizationally. Uh, where you know, organizations are spending millions or billions of dollars, literally. And they're not getting the results they want. Hence the, the title of my book, Leadership Results. Okay. And in fact, there was a, a, an article in Harvard Business Review a few months ago labeling the industry as a training robbery. And I think it's very sad as a, as a member of that community that that's happening. So I think we really need to... Uh, you know, They're labeling as a, as a tra- the training robbery. Okay. Companies are being robbed because they're paying so much money for leadership training specifically. Training and development, yes. Okay. And they're not getting the, the results they expect. So what do we do about that? Because I am also in that industry. <laughs> <laughs> this is not heartening. No, it's not. It's not. And yet we look at the data about the ability to transform organizations successfully run transformation projects and that data has not improved markedly over the last 20 some years. Exactly. And, and the same applies to employee engagement. Okay. Uh, it, it tends to fluctuate but overall mm-hmm. the thing is still low. Like in the country where I live, the estimated cost of lack of engagement is 56, 55, 56 billion dollars. Wow. So that's more than that's the cost of lack of employee engagement? Yes, yes. And I'm suspecting the U.S. is much higher. But, you know, speaking, generally speaking, globally, I think we have a problem. You don't need to have a PhD or anything to realize that. <laughs> you look at the news every day and it's just uh-huh. sad. It's actually very sad, I think. Well, and, and looking at the amount of suffering people experience. Exactly doing the thing that they're paid to do and we would hope they would love doing yeah. but they they don't love they doing don't, no. and I was talking about this at the last conference in Spain mm-hmm. one of the things I talked about was about this that whatever you look at you look at suffering you look at uh, you look at violence mm-hmm. you, you look at uh, 
you know, a, a very sad thing, really. So, do you have recommendations for what to do about it? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we're here, right? Well, I identified at least 10 key areas that need to be looked at, but I think okay. that it's probably not worth it go into those. But generally speaking, I think what's happened is that the world has changed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at it in technology, we use new technologies. Mm-hmm. But in terms of developing leaders, so to speak, or, or doing leadership, I think we're still using very old, outdated ways of thinking and models of leadership. And that's the foundation for my entire book, this whole idea of, are you innovating how you lead? Exactly. To keep pace with the work yeah. you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think most of all, in general, we still hold very dearly to that uh, view of the uh, heroic leader. The, mm-hmm. Usually a man, of course, <laughs> of, of, you know, great uh, attributes, uh, the lone kind of ranger uh, image, Superman, mm-hmm. that is going to go there and fix everything. And I think this is no longer, I, I'm not saying they might be very charismatic and very good people, I'm not trying to diminish that, but I'm saying that we need to look at new forms of leadership. Well, and the whole Leader 2050 focus says that it is not what we saw traditionally, the Marlboro Man, or now with the advent of Marvel Comics and all of the superheroes, it's not that. It is, in fact, the more deliberate, more thoughtful, often quieter, uh, not big ego, and I'm sure there are people who are charismatic who are also quite effective. And, and like a lot of literature and the authentic leadership talks about that. Mm-hmm. But also my interest is more in the more distributed collective forms of leadership. So where do you want to focus our conversation right now? Why what do, do you want our listeners to talk about? Let's focus perhaps uh, on my, um, the presentation I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to make here this year, okay. which is around sense-making and storytelling. Okay. And that's one of the elements that I've okay. said. So, essentially, in times of, of turbulence, mm-hmm. let's, use, let's use that term, the other terms like avuka. <laughs> We've already said that's not the term. Uh, I, I, I say <laughs> times of you know, high velocity, complexity, okay. turbulence, okay. all those terms. So that generates a great deal of confusion and fear. Mm-hmm. And during those times, people ask a very important question, I think we all ask, and that is, what is the story? So sense-making is a relatively simple term that is around providing people with a sense of what's around them. Okay. And is actually one of the um, four dimensions of uh, the model of leadership development that uh, Ancona uses, Professor Ancona okay. at MIT. So sense-making, inventing, relating, and... Um, I can't remember the other one now, but this is sense making is one of them. So I think an important task of leaders today is to make sense of that reality for mm-hmm. others, first for themselves and then for others. And when we look at leadership maturity, we talk about maturing our ability to make sense of things. Yes. So that resonates entirely with me, that the idea right. of sense making. Yeah. And so then the next question is, well, how they do that? Mm-hmm. So first it's about making sense for themselves. 
but then it's how to how they become sense givers, if you like. Okay. And and that's through invariably that's through language. We are linguistic mm-hmm. beings, and, mm-hmm. and so is the use of narratives and mm-hmm. storytelling. So I looked at those two literatures very much: mm-hmm. sense making and, and storytelling. So that's why those two literatures interest okay. me a lot: the, the sense making literature and the storytelling one. Mm-hmm. So, so it's about how their readers develop the narratives, the stories, individual stories and collective stories mm-hmm. to help people to first make sense and then to communicate and use them as springboard for action. Okay, so just to restate, we're, we're in a turbulent or high-velocity time. Yeah. And I, as a leader, need to make sense differently than I did five years ago of the events more complex, more interconnected, more global, and faster moving. And it's my job to make sense for myself of everything that's happening and then help people around me come to a similar sense as I have. Yeah, yeah. help them to make sense. So so as a leader, Mm -hmm. they become a sense giver. Okay. And the analogy that I use in the book is that they're no longer maps. Maps are gone. Mm -hmm. And I use a little story which... There's no time now to talk about it, but you know, people get lost somewhere and, and they find a map, mm-hmm. and eventually they navigate and they get safe to the base. But when mm-hmm. they get there, they arrive, they realize that the map is a different map, it's from another mountain. But yet, the map helped them to get energized, mm-hmm. the confidence, the, mm-hmm. the optimism to get there. Sounds so, like so, me traveling around Brussels. Yeah. <laughs> So sense-making is not so much concerned with accuracy. It's more about uh, plausibility, if you like. It's about we can make choices even though we, we don't understand what happens, but it's how we make sense of it. So it's an interesting concept when you look at it in detail. So I would say it helps me be directionally correct, though, right? Yeah, it, it helps you at least to center yourself. Okay. To, to believe in something, to have that hope and that confidence to move forward and to tap into the inner resources, if you like. Like when those people get lost into the mountain, although the map is not the actual map of the terrain, the mm-hmm. territory, they don't know that. But the belief that that is something triggers the inner resources. They become um, a lot more present to the situation, mm-hmm. more optimistic, more confident, start to remember things They've learned throughout their lives, help each other, collaborate, and eventually they make it. It really does seem like my navigating around um, Brussels <laughs> the last couple of days. As I look at the, the Google thing and it says three minutes and then yeah. it says nine minutes and then it says 12 yeah. minutes. And yeah. Yeah. Clearly I'm going the wrong direction. Yeah. And I'm kind of paying attention to my phone and not looking at the buildings around me. Yeah, exactly. So you... It's a matter also then using more your intuition and creativity. Mm-hmm. We live now in, a, in times where everybody talks about data, big data. And of course data is important, but it's not everything. I, if, you, if you ask me personally, mm-hmm. I think the qualitative piece sits always on top. What do you stand for? Where are you going? What's your vision? So What's your values? values yeah, values, yeah. exactly. The qualitative piece always is the one that provides meaning. The data then not my opinion. I'm listening to the book uh, by the CEO of Microsoft, mm-hmm. where he talks about hit refresh. And very much as they're going through challenges like, how do we deal with 
government wanting information about terrorists and do we unlock algorithms. He continually goes back to values. Mm-hmm. And it's it's more about what do we stand for yeah. and what do I stand for. I value security, but I also value confidentiality. So how do we make that decision? And and he balances, but continually I hear him going back to first values and then the data about what would make the business thrive. Absolutely, because that centers you. I think it was general short course in the U.S. That's oh, um, Schwarzkopf, yeah. yeah. Storm and Norman. Yeah, he talks about uh, a strategy and character and leadership. Mm-hmm. And he says, if you have to choose one and not having the other, you go with character. Don't mind strategy. It, it makes sense. And to me, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's not exactly what we're talking about, but I think it draws a, a bit of a parallel. So it, it, who you is as a leader, what's your character? Mm-hmm. You know, where do you sit in life? is far more important than strategy because the strategy, the context is changing so fast that the strategy tomorrow won't be uh, valid any longer anyway. We need to have it, but yeah, it, yeah. have it held loosely. Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, there is a Spanish poet, I'm sorry I'm mixing now poetry no, with his songs, but <laughs> I think that leadership is part of that. Uh, Machado, I think it's called, talks about, uh, there's a poem that talks about that you make the way as you walk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is no way. Well, no and I think that's, that's something that's important for our listeners to hear because so many people want to get it right. And yeah. so many followers want their, their right. leaders right. to have that's not clarity. Empowering. That's not empowering. Yeah. It's not real. Exactly. And, and if we are to engage people, if we are to use more distributive or collective ways of, of mm-hmm. leading, is about everybody having that sense of, you know, they are. And, and where they're going, and understanding that nobody's going to ever going to be there uh, to hold your hand, you know. Well, especially now when things are changing faster than we can make sense of, exactly. so we continue to refine through the filter of our wisdom. Mm-hmm. And unwise is not helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been interesting teaching grad students because they come in thinking. They want kind of the, the books. Yeah. yeah. They want they want the seven steps. Tell me that, that, <laughs> that how long ago is that? Like, come on, you know. And that's the problem. We still use those uh, ways of thinking, mental models, call them mm-hmm. whatever you like, mm-hmm. of twenty or thirty years ago, and expect them to use today. But we need to update our mental software. We're very good about updating mm-hmm. our iPhones and all that, but mm-hmm. we still use the old mental software. In fact, one of my taglines is "Don't be the flip front of leadership." There you so, go. There you go. so how would you help if this room were full at this moment? So we're we're talking virtually to a full room of people who hear you saying, "I need to update," but what the heck does that mean? What do I do to make that happen? Well, you need to question what are your assumptions, what okay. what, what are your expectations? You need to be open to look at new ways of, of thinking, being, and doing, you know. I have to update myself to update my sense-making machine. If you like, yeah. I mean, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, mm-hmm. about what we're doing that could be changed, it's like leadership training, you know. Mm-hmm. I think always people expect that, you know, structure, if you like, you know, module one, module two. Mm-hmm. So when I work with people in the leadership space, I tend to work more 
with whatever they work in, but, but see how it emerges as the group works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that sets the agenda, if you like. And that helps them to get the work done as well. So that thing that you go to a training program, and then you go back to work, and you've got to look at all this transfer of learning, of mm -hmm. you know, knowledge and skills and whatever, that's a bit of an old hat as well, you know. So then you got all the pieces of the actual learning literature and all that, yeah. brand new stuff, which I know that a lot of people use. But I think this needs now to be very prominent and taken up. Mm -hmm. I like the work of Rayling as well, Joe Rayling, you probably know him. So, but many of our listeners don't. So. Oh, well, Joe Rayling is based in uh, Boston, I think, at Northwestern, he talks about uh, leadership as practice. Ah, I love that idea. Yeah, yeah. and he talks about uh, leaderful organizations. So I really like his work. It's, mm -hmm. it's very, in fact, when I read it, I thought, oh, wow, this guy mm -hmm. knows how I think. <laughs> And, and it's more about being tuned to what's happening. And this goes with a term that's very used today, which is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. What's being mindful? Being here, being now, you know, being here for each other, you know, and see what emerges out of, out of our conversation that we can learn. It's more of a facilitated process, if you like, than a training structure. And action learning for people who are also unfamiliar with that. Mm -hmm. So, at least my understanding is, I learn something, I put it into practice. I, I also talk about the leader taking on the mind of the scientist. So, I, I have a hypothesis that this will work. I mm -hmm. test it, and instead of being wrong, an ongoing, unfolding learning process, it's not a right and wrong anymore. Exactly. It's, it's about keep questioning how mm -hmm. to do it, and working on real-time issues as... as as people experience the problems in the organizations. And we certainly have enough of them. It's not like we... <laughs> I don't have anything to work on today. We do, we do, yes. So look, I understand that all this is a little bit more abstract mm -hmm. than, than uh, thinking more in the way we, we, we thought traditionally, but that's the way it is. Life is more complex. Mm -hmm. So I know we're trying to make it simple, but we need to look at things from a different perspective. That's mm -hmm. another term I like to use. Yeah. I say to people, you know, you go into this corner of the room, mm -hmm. you see one perspective of mm -hmm. the room. And if you don't shift around, if you don't move, you will never see any other perspective. And a lot of people, you know, inadvertently, they're not mm -hmm. aware of it, but they keep looking at the room mm -hmm. from the same perspective. It's interesting. I work with a lot of technology leaders in one of, but any functional area. Exactly. As I hit a certain level, I need to take on the perspective of the general organization. Yeah. I also have to stand in my corner. Of course. But then I have to stand in your corner. Exactly. And see your point of view. Yeah, and that leads me to another piece that has been very popular, and that's the adaptive leadership. Mm -hmm. the, the Heifetz work? Yeah, Ron Heifetz and, and Linsky, which is that we, we still keep treating all these complex problems or adaptive problems mm -hmm. as technical problems, particularly technical people, uh, IT mm -hmm, people and mm -hmm. engineers. They see everything from a technical perspective, and that's why they keep failing, you know. Well, so again, adaptive leadership is basically the problem solves me. I don't just solve it, but I need to change in the process. Yeah, you need to, exactly. And, it, and the change takes place in different places. Mm -hmm. And it is also about what you were saying, that you keep hypothesizing. So mm -hmm. it's a bit like the, the, 
scientists. You know, you keep asking and then you expect that you might be wrong, but that's a good thing because now you don't know where you're going to go, you go elsewhere. And it's about, you know, looking from the balcony mm-hmm. to the view. It's about, you know, understanding the stakeholders and their perspective. And it's also about uh, putting pressure into the system. And that, that's risky because sometimes if you put too much, if you don't put enough pressure, things don't change. The system mm-hmm. can remain the same. And if you put too much pressure, as uh, Heidegger says, you blow up. <laughs> Which is why I say good scientists are not dead scientists. Yeah, but we, we have well conducted experiments are hard. Yeah, and, and I was uh, interesting, it was in my book when somebody asked me, what about leaders like? They mentioned Kennedy, they mentioned um, Mandela, who else they mentioned? No, no, no. I said, well, if you look at it, all the ones you mentioned, pretty much, they all they're dead. They're dead, but they were killed. <laughs> they were killed. So when you're trying to put too much change and mm-hmm. the system doesn't want it, the system will take care of that. That's why it's dangerous. And and we were told by Hanford and Mark Leninsky mm-hmm. when we finished the course, be careful when you go up there. Because people do those new things and go up there all excited, oh, I'm gonna do that. It doesn't work. Most people you go back whatever you work, if you work for someone, and the first mm-hmm. thing they'll do is tap into your shoulder. If you, if you don't jump the same height you did before, they're going to get very worried. <laughs> if you don't jump the same way, well, and so we talk about leadership training failing, but it's not necessarily the training, it's putting people back into the same culture where we don't always really want them to change. Because you start seeing new things, you see, that's the thing, uh, and that's what I really try to do in my work, after the experience of the... Mm-hmm development, training, pull it, whatever you like, you see things in a different way. You see things that before were invisible to you, or beneath the iceberg, mm-hmm. if you like to mm-hmm. use the analogy of iceberg. So now you see different things. So you can't be the same person again. And, and other people may have difficulties with that, because they can't relate in the same way anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm shaking my head because <laughs> I've been there. I lost assignments for that, I lost jobs in my career for that. Yeah, I did too. I, I have to confess I'm particularly, uh, maybe a bit skewed to that way, you know, I'm a <laughs> bit of a, a rebellious by nature, if you like, you know, but uh, that's the way that's it what is. what we call people who are self-employed. Yeah, exactly, because we, I, I think we're too creative, we're too, um, you know, we like to do what we like to do, and if we have all these constraints, we get suffocated, yeah. Well, and it gives you an opportunity to really be a scientist, yeah. to really hypothesize and test, and for clients who are interested in that magnitude of change, they hire you. Yeah. Clients who aren't may hire you, but they don't retain you as long. True. Yeah. So it's a price to pay. And yet that is the price of progress. Exactly. Again, in an environment that is changing so quickly. Yeah, and you look at it, um, I mean, as you get in the U.S., it's the same, but a lot of manufacturing firms close, a lot of business close, mm-hmm. a lot of people lose jobs. Do we want them? Of course not, but it has always happened, and it's part of what happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Any change comes to, uh, that is a, a pain, is, is a transition. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and again, that's another topic, you know, but... I talk about leadership transitions and initiations. You know, great leaders always, I believe, been initiated. 
and gone through a great deal of suffering. People like Mandela, for example, Lincoln. So let's use that as the wrap up. <laughs> oh, well, that's a big topic. Well, so if you were to summarize your initiation. Well, my initiation was like this. I was exposed to leadership when I was quite young. Mm -hmm. When I was 13 years of age, mm -hmm. my father died. Oh, goodness. Mm -hmm. And that really shook my world. And the first thing my mother said to me was, now you're the head of the family and need to look after me and, my two, and you two younger brothers. Okay. And I fell miserably. I didn't do a good job, but it took me... You were 13. Exactly. But it took me decades to realize that. Hmm. Not until I looked at leadership seriously and I read things like Abraham Lincoln that says that <clears throat> it's not about whether you fail or not, but whether you content with your failures. Hmm. Or Nelson Mandela that says it's not whether we fail, but it's every time we rise. Even Bill Gates talks about that. Mm -hmm. It's more important to learn from failures than... than successes, and even Steve Jobs, don't be afraid of failure. So at that point I understood that I needed that failure, I needed that initiation to go into that liminal space mm -hmm. to experience what is it like to fail. Because when you fail, you have to surrender to something bigger than yourself, you have to trust others. And leaders that have not been initiated abuse their power. And we have a lot of them around the world because they believe they can get anything they want for their own self-serving. And that's because they never had an initiation. They don't understand that the role is served to others. So you and I should start the corporate initiation? <laughs> I call it uh, initiation coaching. Okay. And again, it, so it's a bit like the question has always been, are this made or born? You know? mm -hmm. Well, I say, well, either. How about if they initiate it? Hmm. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you. This has been such a delight. Thank you. So if people are more interested, chapter six of my book talks specifically about initiation. So again, give us the name of your book, where we can find it. Well, it'll be here at the conference. Uh, but for listeners who oh, aren't here. Sorry. Well, it's called Leadership Resolves, how to create adaptive leaders okay. and high-performing organizations through an uncertain world. Okay. And it's a long topic, but leadership results is easy to remember. Okay, and it's yeah. available on Amazon? Yeah, it's available on Amazon and many other uh, online, but definitely okay. on Amazon, yes. And your name is? Sebastian Salikru. S-A-L-I-C-R-U. Salikru. So for people looking it up. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> we're trying to make sure our listeners can find you. Yeah, I think, if they, I think if they type leadership results, Sebastian, it'll appear very quickly. Thank you so much. It was an absolute delight. Thank you for joining us live in Brussels at the International Leadership Association Conference. In these turbulent times, investing time and energy to refresh and evolve your leadership skills becomes a critical success driver. I challenge each of us to consider the impact effective leadership makes on our lives and on the lives of the organizations we lead and the people that those organizations impact. Imagine what each of us can do as we work together to
to solve these big problems that impact us. Together we can create a world that is more peaceful, more just, and creates more opportunities for everyone to thrive.